1: The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world, by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio Program. And I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. My guest is a returning guest today, our Reasonable Voice, Patricia Helen LaMarche, author, Green Party candidate for vice president in 2004, wife and mother of two, whose newest books discuss homelessness in the age of Donald Trump. Pat LaMarche is an award-winning broadcaster and journalist, has spent a lifetime traveling around the world and across the nation, telling the tales of ordinary folks living through unimaginable hardship. Her two non-fiction books, Left Out in America and Daddy, What's the Middle Class?, exposed the harsh realities of life for the impoverished American and their ongoing struggle to survive. In 2004, LaMarche took on both Dick Cheney and John Edwards as the Green Party's vice presidential candidate. In recent years, Pat LaMarche has started writing fiction with her novel, Magic Diary, and her Priscilla Kids book series. We're happy to have her join us again today because November is Homeless Awareness Month. Not that we shouldn't be aware of it every month, but... Veterans Day and, coincidentally, Homeless Awareness Month both fall in November. Pat LaMarche has a new book out revealing the truth about homelessness. It explains everything from HUD to climate change and the challenges posted by the upcoming eviction tsunami. It's published by Sunbury Press and is entitled Still Left Out in America. That's still, S-T-I-L-L, left out in America. Welcome back, Pat LaMarche. How are you today?
0: I'm great, thanks so much
1: for having me back. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, when we finished the last time, I remembered uh, I wanted you back because you had mentioned November being the Homelessness Awareness Month. And as a veteran, I was aware the you know, Veterans Day falls in November, but also because I just had hopes that things were gonna change. Of course, they haven't quite changed yet, with a little stubbornness and childishness in high places, but. The world and America and homelessness are not going to suddenly, uh, and COVID-19 for that matter, suddenly be better on January 20th. So I think if for no other reason, we need to have you back to wake us up. And one of the things, if you don't mind my starting, one of the things I asked Pat before we came on the air, because she had mentioned zero barrier shelters for tough weather. And I frankly didn't know what a zero barrier shelter was until Pat LaMarche told us. So will you tell everybody there, Pat, now?
0: Yeah, um, a zero barrier shelter is uh, usually only employed for um, in very inclement weather. You've heard of warming centers and cooling centers. When it's 110 degrees out, they'll open up a gymnasium and let people come in and cool off. Or when it's 10 below, they'll have a warming center in a town where people can, can get warm. Uh, of course, COVID 19 and the upcoming and sometimes now current lockdowns are making public places where people go to get warm harder to get into, like libraries. Mm. But what happens with a zero barrier shelter is there are no questions asked when you present yourself to the shelter. Now, there are some year round in some places, like New York City, where there are probably 250,000 homeless people a night yes. in the city. So they have zero barrier shelters all the time, but usually they're only employed when the weather will dip below freezing or in many cases below zero Fahrenheit, then uh, you, know, you have your problem of people freezing to death outside. So no questions are asked. They don't ask for a background check. If you have a criminal record, you're not barred from the shelter. The attendants at a zero-barrier shelter stay awake all night because you don't know. You might have a, a four-year-old next to someone on Megan's Law. Uh-huh. So the staff is awake, and it's it's like any public place. You, know, you, you don't have to pass a background check to go to a Walmart. So gotcha. it, it's a shelter that allows people in with no questions asked simply so that they don't have deaths due
1: to weather okay and so what that implies as you told me before we started the show is that there are shelters that generally do ask for personal information before allowing you in and I understand the safety factor I do but tell me some of the questions that are asked of people before they can enter a shelter because you said a very interesting thing I thought uh, just because they're shelters doesn't mean they're sheltering can you explain that to us
0: Well, it it depends on the shelter. In some shelters across the country, you won't be allowed in if you have a child over 12. Really? So if you have a 14-year-old and a 5-year-old, you have to choose which child you want to have sheltered. You can keep the whole family out for the sake of the 14-year-old, or you can send your teen on their own to get the 5-year-old in out of the elements those shelters, if they receive federal funds, have to with the Hearth Act that was passed under the Obama administration, any federally funded shelter must allow teens up till eighteen as soon as the Hearth Act is funded, which <laughs> it's never been funded. Okay. So <laughs> So there are, you know, there are many shelters across the nation that don't allow a teenager. Over the uh, sometimes it's just a male teen. Yes. Sometimes it's a single dad who can't go in, even though he has a five-year-old, because he is over 12. There are a lot of barriers of just plain old sexism and and prejudice. They don't like you know. You know I always think of uh, Rudolph when he's trying to impress Clarice and he knocks his antlers against another reindeer in the <laughs> in the little in the old cartoon. You know, there are little tough boy things that happen, and a lot of shelters don't want that. So that's a terrible hardship for families and for individuals. Another one is if you don't have an ID, you can't come in. Well, a lot of people lose their ID when they become homeless or they never had one to begin with. So if you can't present an ID, you can't get sheltered. An ID could be $32. I mean, that's one of the line items. If someone wants to know how to donate, they could call a local shelter and see if they have a fund just for helping people get their ID back and donate to that because that's huge. Sometimes you can't get a new ID if you don't have your original birth certificate, and then you have to pay the state you were born in to get a copy of your birth certificate. So it it's very cost prohibitive when you're already broke yeah. to start getting the things necessary to seek shelter.
1: So you're broke and you're homeless and they're asking for things I I mean I I, I do I do I can intellectualize, all right, the necessity to make certain you know who is in this homeless shelter the example you gave of you know a four year old sleeping next to i get i get it but doesn't it kind of smack in the face of i mean, I mean if you're in the homeless shelter business how about that <laughs> right. you know your clientele is generally broke otherwise why would they be knocking at mm. your door of the homeless shelter Uh, Okay. I'm not being facetious, and I'm certainly not trivializing. I'm trying to just understand this. Well, you
0: know, it's really important that you are struggling with this. I, I think the example you are setting for your listeners, which hopefully is just sort of setting them at ease that they're confused too. Okay. It's really important because we have so underfunded. These are necessities that are struck to – if it's not just plain sexism and you don't want a 14-year-old boy there, if it's if – it's, we can't have people in here if we don't know who they are because we've got to keep everybody safe, mm. well, that's because we've underfunded the system so much that nobody can afford to hire staff to stay awake. Mm. We started a zero-barrier shelter last year in, in the town I live in, and I demanded that the overnight staff get paid. And one of the reasons I demanded the overnight staff get paid besides the fact that people should be paid is Mm -hmm. because if you if you staff a shelter with volunteers, it's that much harder to fire them.
1: Ah.
0: And if you can't fire the person, you can't demand a certain level of of work product. Gotcha. And in the work product demands that you stay awake. It demands that you keep people safe. It demands that you are aware of, of how to call for safety if you need it. But we have so underfunded the system that we aren't. We haven't prioritized helping people, so the people who still bother helping people don't have any resources with which to help them.
1: Well, you know, I had said to you, I believe somewhere along the line, uh, that you gave us so many hard to listen to, for sure, but, but necessary to hear statistics the last time you were on the show. And I said, okay, the next time we're going to hear some stories from you. Well, we certainly have started off with that. Some stories, some personal experiences of what's going on. And at the top of the list, I mean, it is so often the money. There are a lot of good people who want to do something. And we're going to talk about what one person can do. And clearly, our guest today, Pat LaMarche, is one person and she has done plenty, not the least of which is educating us. But I wonder, people are quite literally, and of course, we're going into the holiday season, and who knows what climate change is doing with the weather, but there are going to be some some cold weather somewhere in this country, and then COVID-19 and another wave, and I don't think we as a public have a clear picture about shelters, clearly, as you pointed out. Just because they exist doesn't mean they're financed or functioning properly, and... Most of all, we don't know who homeless people are. We've got this weird old Reagan-era image. But they're veterans, they're children, they're the middle-class family, and, of course, the always the forgotten working poor. Give us a better picture of, of who's homeless out there.
0: Oh, yeah, everybody. I have known a few, very few um, people who were sitting pretty who ended up crashed down into homelessness. Mm. It's usually a pretty long fall that someone else can catch you on your way. You might be the Department of Education's classification of homelessness, which is doubled up. Mm. So your, your daughter gets cancer. And mm. you have a home with two extra bedrooms. So you say, okay, come on home, daughter. And she brings her two other children, and she struggles with her cancer in your home. Mm. And that is technically homeless according to the Department of Education. Those children, I mean, at any time she could run afoul of someone's new partner, right? Mom brings her daughter home, but the, the boyfriend doesn't like her. Gotcha. You know, you don't really have a home, but you're but you have a place to go. Mm-hmm. But when you keep falling to the point that all of your safety net is shredded, then you end up in my new book, Still Left Out in America, I tell the story of this one young man named Jeff. And I say in the book, you know, in in Dickens, they say Marley was dead. If you don't believe me, then you won't learn anything. Mm -hmm. Well, Jeff was brilliant. And if you don't believe me, then you won't learn anything about homelessness. Mm -hmm. Jeff was absolutely brilliant. He had two master's degrees, one in accounting, and I forget what the other one was in and he got really sick and he couldn't go to work. He was estranged from his family and he got sicker and sicker and, and less capable of making good health care decisions and ended up living in an alley between a theater and another building in downtown Harrisburg. Mm. He didn't know what was wrong with him but because he was too sick to go to work he lost his job, he lost his health insurance. He ended up literally being saved by Occupy Harrisburg, which was a movement a few years back when a whole pile of people started occupying public space. It started out in Wall Street and moved around the country. Mm-hmm. But eventually he just couldn't take it anymore and he dragged his duffel bag up onto a bridge and a driver drove by and he said, I'm just so sick, I don't know what to do. The driver took him to the hospital and the emergency room said, you know, you don't have any insurance, we don't have anything we can do for you. And were sending him home, okay. and he said, "I should just have thrown myself, tied myself to my duffel bag, and thrown myself off the bridge." Mm. And then they kept him. So there's a law in Pennsylvania that's called being 302, where you're a danger to yourself or someone else, and so they can hold you for 72 hours. So only because he had made suicidal comments that he said afterwards he didn't really mean he was just talking about the state of healthcare in the country. Mm he was kept for 72 hours and one of the doctors that saw him said there's something seriously wrong with this guy and it's not in his head Mm. he had stage two or three colon cancer oh god so when i met him this man who was brilliant but couldn't navigate a system especially as it was making him sicker and he was skipping work he had a colostomy they removed a large portion of his intestine and he was coping with his cancer, sleeping on the floors of churches. His colostomy bag would burst. He slept with 70 or so other people on the floor. It was a constant, either constant pain, embarrassment, struggle, having to get the the equipment to change his um, apparatus, and trying to recover from this massive surgery. All of that at the same time. Now he's not the same homeless as the woman who goes home to live with her mom and brings her kids with her, he is a homeless of a level mm. Mm. that I don't know that I would have the, the strength to survive.
1: Yes.
0: And I still know this man in going forward after he healed, he ended up having his colostomy re whatever they do. I'm not a doctor. They reattached him. He no longer has the bag uh-huh. and he started his own bicycle outreach oh, wow. to help other homeless people fix and repair bicycles so that they can get back and forth to work. Wow. <laughs> so this is a brilliant, a brilliant guy who made, maybe he didn't make great health care choices. Maybe he should have called his father and said, I forgive you for whatever it is I was mad at you for. And now, now can you help me? Because I'm really sick. Mm. Whatever other choice someone thinks they might have made for him. Mm-hmm. I always am in the housing business. I'm not in the judging business. Mm-hmm. If I were in the judging business, I know a few United States senators that wouldn't have a house.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> but because I'm in the housing business, all I can do is accept people at their face value and try and help them into a home. Yes. So there are, I could, I could bore you to literal tears all day long, telling you stories of amazing people. I've met people like Jeff, who, who, for all intents and purposes has won his struggle and many other people who did not fare as well. I'll tell you one other quick story.
1: Yes, please. About
0: a, about a veteran just because of Veterans Day. And you mentioned that you are one to me, the veterans are the most, they're the most capable people on the street. Mm -hmm. They are the people who are actually trained to live on the street. They're trained to live in the woods. They're trained to, to, to be, Strength under pressure, bullets whizzing by, they're still making the decisions, they're training, like everything else has stopped working, but their training still works. Mm -hmm. And so they are the strength of the homeless community. They are the leadership of the homeless community. And because of our nation's priorities, we pull them out of the homeless community the fastest so there's more money for homeless outreach for veterans there's more money for housing for veterans there's more there are more resource sources for veterans so this actual leadership core of a community is pulled out really as fast as humanly possible and then the less qualified people to be homeless for want of a better term they live without them but there was this one gentleman and he was in the shelter and the rule was you couldn't leave the building if you were doing your laundry and if your laundry was left in the washer or the dryer it would be thrown away. Okay. Now by the time you're in a shelter these folks just had a, a like a, a junior high school half locker to keep their stuff and you don't have much for clothing. Mm-hmm. And so he had to go he had a job interview and he asked a woman in the shelter to take his clothes out of the laundry for him. Mm. And she forgot. And when he got back to the shelter his clothes were thrown away. Oh. And that wasn't my department. My department was counseling, helping people get housing. Yes. The woman who's program, she was program manager. She ran the building. It was her job to make sure that the facility ran. So she threw his clothes away. Mm. And I was always locking heads with these people because – she had a job to do, but her job was stupid, in mm-hmm. my opinion. If she couldn't put some laundry in her, in her office and wait for somebody to come back, she was an unimaginative person in my mind. So anyway, this guy came back, and he lost his mind. He was so furious, a level of anger that people would be stunned by, mm-hmm. absolutely stunned by. But he had counted on one person to help him, and she she was human and forgot. Yes. Then the, the organization that was supposed to help him threw his clothes away. Yeah. And so I went out with him, and we dumpster dove and climbed through the dumpster to find his clothing and put it back through the washer again, you know. and And that was the only thing that calmed him down, was saying, okay, let's – go get your clothes back. Yeah. Luckily, she didn't set them on fire. <laughs> well, we can probably find them. So yeah. These are the things that people encounter. That, and, and that level of rage that he was, he didn't hurt anybody, but he was so angry. And that level of rage will generally get you kicked out of a shelter. If you're angry, which how can you help it? Yes. You'll get thrown out.
1: All right. We're going to take a break there. This is enlightening. As disturbing as it is, and it is but we are having our image, our definition, our concept of homelessness reassessed and reestablished Is more truthful. And this honesty, this level of honesty is necessary for all of us. Stay with us, everyone. We'll be back with our guest today, Pat LaMarche, author, and certainly extraordinaire in the, shall we call it, the science of knowing and doing. What can one person do? to help alleviate homelessness. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to the NDFail Minute. In 2006, an inconvenient truth told us that global warming was upon us, that it was caused by the actions of mankind, and that the consequences would be dire if we took no action. Ten years later, broad predictions have coalesced into horrific specifics, and climate change accelerates. Really? Who says so? Important, trustworthy people say so. Check out the eye-opening documentary, The Age of Consequences. These aren't our simultaneously lauded and vilified scientists talking, but important and thoughtful world leaders. Those who bear frontline burden. They must plan for our survival. One of the first countries to go underwater will be Bangladesh. This will be a flashpoint. Did you know there is already a fence surrounding the entire country for controlling the inevitable mass migration? Many of the biggest crises of our times, Syria, the Sudan, the failed Arab Spring and others, are already tied to climate change. With shocking imagery driving their points home, the predictions of these world leaders are grounded in grim reality. We at the Indie Film Minute are not political animals. We only watch movies and bring your attention to the good ones. This one is a powerful eye-opener. Watch it. You'll see. The Age of Consequences. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio Program, and I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. My guest is a returning guest today. Our Reasonable Voice, Patricia Helen Lamarche, author, Green Party candidate for vice president in 2004, wife and mother of two, whose newest books discuss homelessness in the age of Donald Trump. Pat LaMarche is an award-winning broadcaster and journalist, has spent a lifetime traveling around the world and across the nation, telling the tales of ordinary folks living through unimaginable hardship. Her two non fiction books, Left Out in America and Daddy, What's the Middle Class, exposed the harsh realities of life for the impoverished American and their ongoing struggle to survive. In 2004, LaMarche took on both Dick Cheney and John Edwards as the Green Party's vice presidential candidate. In recent years, Pat LaMarche has started writing fiction with her novel, Magic Diary, and her Priscilla Kids book series. We're happy to have her join us again today because November is Homeless Awareness Month. Not that we shouldn't be aware of it every month, but Veterans Day and, coincidentally, Homeless Awareness Month both fall in November. Pat LaMarche, has a new book out revealing the truth about homelessness. It explains everything from HUD to climate change and the challenges posted by the upcoming eviction tsunami. It's published by Sunbury Press and is entitled Still Left Out in America. That's still, S-T-I-L-L, left out in America. Welcome back Pat LaMarche, how are you today?
0: Great. Thanks
1: so much for having me back. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, when we finished the last time, I remembered uh, I wanted you back because you had mentioned November being Homelessness Awareness Month. And as a veteran, I was aware, you know, Veterans Day falls in November. But also because I just had hopes that things were going to change. Of course, they haven't quite changed yet uh, with a little stubbornness and childishness in high places. But the world and America and homelessness are not going to suddenly Uh, and COVID-19 for that matter, suddenly be better on January 20th. So I think if for no other reason, we need to have you back to wake us up. And one of the things, if you don't mind my starting, one of the things I asked Pat before we came on the air, because she had mentioned zero barrier shelters for tough weather. And I frankly didn't know what a zero barrier shelter was, until Pat LaMarche told us. So will you tell everybody there, Pat, now?
0: Yeah, um, a zero-barrier shelter is uh, usually only employed for um, in very inclement weather. You've heard of warming centers and cooling centers. When it's 110 degrees out, they'll open up a gymnasium and let people come in and cool off. Or when it's 10 below, they'll have a warming center in a town where people can, can get warm. Uh, of course, COVID-19 and the upcoming and sometimes now current lockdowns are making public places where people go to get warm harder to get into, like libraries. Mm. But what happens with a zero-barrier shelter is there are no questions asked when you present yourself to the shelter. Now, there are some year-round in some places, like New York City, where there are probably 250,000 homeless people a night in the city. So they have zero-barrier shelters all the time, but usually they're only employed when the weather will dip below freezing, or in many cases below zero Fahrenheit, then uh, you know you have your problem of people freezing to death outside. So no questions are asked. They don't ask for a background check. If you have a criminal record, you're not barred from the shelter. The attendants at a zero-barrier shelter stay awake all night because you don't know. You might have a, a four-year-old next to someone on Megan's Law. Uh-huh. So the staff is awake, and it's it's like any public place. You, know, you, you don't have to pass a background check to go to a Walmart. So gotcha. it's a shelter that allows people in with no questions asked simply so that they don't have deaths due
1: to weather okay and so what that implies as you told me before we started the show is that there are shelters that generally do ask for personal information before allowing you in and i understand the safety factor i do but tell me some of the questions that are asked of people before they can enter a shelter because you said a very interesting thing i thought uh, just because they're shelters doesn't mean they're sheltering can you explain that to us
0: Well, it it depends on the shelter. In some shelters across the country, you won't be allowed in if you have a child over 12. Really? So if you have a 14-year-old and a 5-year-old, you have to choose which child you want to have sheltered. You can keep the whole family out for the sake of the 14-year-old, or you can send your teen on their own to get the 5-year-old in out of the elements. Those shelters, if they receive federal funds, have to, with the HEARTH Act that was passed under the Obama administration, any federally funded shelter must allow teens up till eighteen as soon as the Hearth Act is funded, which <laughs> it's never been funded. Okay. So, <laughs> so there are you know there are many shelters across the nation that don't allow a teenager. Over the, uh, sometimes it's just a male teen. Yes. Sometimes it's a single dad who can't go in, even though he has a five-year-old, because he is over 12. There are a lot of barriers of just plain old sexism and and prejudice. They don't like you know. You know I always think of uh, Rudolph when he's trying to impress Clarice and he knocks his antlers against another reindeer in the in the little in the old cartoon. You know, there are little tough boy things that happen and a lot of shelters don't want that. So that's a terrible hardship for families and for individuals. Another one is if you don't have an ID, you can't come in. Well, a lot of people lose their ID when they become homeless or they never had one to begin with. So if you can't present an ID, you can't get sheltered. An ID could be $32. I mean, that's one of the line items. If someone wants to know how to donate, they could call a local shelter and see if they have a fund just for helping people get their ID back and donate to that, because that's huge. Sometimes you can't get a new ID if you don't have your original birth certificate, and then you have to pay the state you were born in to get a copy of your birth certificate. So it's it's very cost prohibitive when you're already broke to start getting the things necessary to seek shelter.
1: So you're broke and you're homeless. And they're asking for things i I mean I, I I do I do I can intellectualize all right the necessity to make certain you know who is in this homeless shelter. The example you gave of you know a four- year old sleeping next to i get I get it, but doesn't it kind of smack in the face of i mean I mean, if you're in the homeless shelter business, how about that? <laughs> right. You know your clientele is generally broke. Otherwise, why would they be knocking at Mm. your door of the homeless shelter? Uh, Okay, I'm not being facetious, and I'm certainly not trivializing. I'm trying to just understand this. Well,
0: you know, it's really important that you are struggling with this. I, I think the example you are setting for your listeners, which hopefully is just sort of setting them at ease that they're confused too. Okay. It's really important because we have so underfunded these are necessities that are struck to – if it's not just plain sexism and you don't want a 14-year-old boy there, if it's if – it's, we can't have people in here if we don't know who they are because we've got to keep everybody safe. Mm. Well, that's because we've underfunded the system so much that nobody can afford to hire staff to stay awake. Mm. We started a zero-barrier shelter last year in, in the town I live in, and I demanded that the overnight staff get paid. And one of the reasons I demanded the overnight staff get paid, besides the fact that people should be paid, is mm. because if you if you staff a shelter with volunteers, it's that much harder to fire them. Ah. And if you can't fire the person, you can't demand a certain level of, of work product. Gotcha. And in the work product demands that you stay awake. It demands that you keep people safe. It demands that you are aware of, of how to call for safety if you need it. But we have so underfunded the system that we aren't – We haven't prioritized helping people, so the people who still bother helping people don't have any resources with which to help them.
1: Well, you know, I had said to you, I believe, somewhere along the line uh, that you gave us so many hard to listen to, for sure, but, but necessary to hear statistics the last time you were on the show, and I said, okay, the next time we're going to hear some stories from you. Well, we certainly have started off with that. Some stories, some personal experiences of what's going on. And at the top of the list, I mean, it is so often the money. There are a lot of good people who want to do something. And we're going to talk about what one person can do. And clearly, our guest today, Pat LaMarche, is one person and she has done plenty, not the least of which is educating us. But I wonder, people are quite literally and of course we're going into the holiday season and who knows what climate change is doing with the weather but there are going to be some some cold weather somewhere in this country and then covid-19 and another wave and i don't think we as a public have a clear picture about shelters clearly as you pointed out just because they exist doesn't mean they're financed or functioning properly and most of all, we don't know who homeless people are. We've got this mm-hmm. weird old Reagan-era image. But they're mm-hmm. veterans, they're children, they're the middle-class family, and, of course, the always the forgotten working poor. Give us a better picture of, of who's homeless out there.
0: Oh, yeah, everybody. <laughs> I have known a few, very few um, people who were sitting pretty who ended up crashed down into homelessness. Mm. It's usually a pretty long fall that someone else can catch you on your way. You might be the Department of Education's classification of homelessness, which is doubled up. Mm. So your your daughter gets cancer. Mm-hmm. And you have a home with two extra bedrooms, so you say, "Okay, come on home, daughter," and she brings her two other children, and she struggles with her cancer in your home mm-hmm. and that is technically homeless, according to the Department of Education. those children i mean at any time she could run afoul of someone's new partner, right Mom brings her daughter home, but the the boyfriend doesn't like her gotcha. you know you don't really have a home, but you're but you have a place to go. Mm-hmm. But when you keep falling to the point that all of your safety net is shredded, then you end up in my new book, Still Left Out in America. I tell the story of this one young man named Jeff. And I say in the book, you know, in in Dickens, they say Marley was dead. If you don't believe me, then you won't learn anything. Mm -hmm. Well, Jeff was brilliant. And if you don't believe me, then you won't learn anything about homelessness. Mm -hmm. Jeff was absolutely brilliant. He had two master's degrees, one in accounting, and I forget what the other one was in and he got really sick and he couldn't go to work. He was estranged from his family and he got sicker and sicker and and less capable of making good health care decisions and ended up living in an alley between a theater and another building in downtown Harrisburg. Mm. He didn't know what was wrong with him but because he was too sick to go to work he lost his job, he lost his health insurance. He ended up literally being saved by Occupy Harrisburg, which was a movement a few years back when a whole pile of people started occupying public space. It started out in Wall Street and moved around the country. Mm-hmm. But eventually he just couldn't take it anymore and he dragged his duffel bag up onto a bridge and a driver drove by and he said, I'm just so sick, I don't know what to do. The driver took him to the hospital and the emergency room said, you know, you don't have any insurance. We don't have anything we can do for you and were sending him home. And he said, I should just have thrown myself, tied myself to my duffel bag and thrown myself off the bridge. Mm. And then they kept him. So there's a law in Pennsylvania, it's called being 302'd where you're a danger to yourself or someone else and so they can hold you for 72 hours. So only because he had made suicidal comments that he said afterwards, he didn't really mean he was just talking about the state of healthcare in the country. He was kept for 72 hours and one of the doctors that saw him said there's something seriously wrong with this guy and it's not in his head
1: Mm. he
0: had stage two or three colon cancer oh god so when i met him this man who was brilliant but couldn't navigate a system especially as it was making him sicker and he was skipping work he had a colostomy they removed a large portion of his intestine and he was coping with his cancer, sleeping on the floors of churches. His colostomy bag would burst. He slept with seventy or so other people on the floor. It was a constant, either constant pain, embarrassment, struggle, having to get the the equipment to change his um, apparatus, and trying to recover from this massive surgery. Yeah. All of that at the same time. Now he's not the same homeless as the woman who goes home to live with her mom and brings her kids with her. He is a homeless of a level mm. Mm. that I don't know that I would have the the strength to survive,
1: yes,
0: and I still know this man in going forward after he healed, he ended up having his colostomy re- whatever they do. I'm not a doctor. they reattached him, he no longer has the bag,
1: uh-huh.
0: and he started his own bicycle outreach oh, wow. to help other homeless people fix and repair bicycles so that they can get back and forth to work. Wow. So this is a brilliant a brilliant guy who made maybe he didn't make great healthcare choices. Maybe he should have called his father and said, I forgive you for whatever it is I was mad at you for and now now can you help me because I'm really sick. Mm. Whatever other choice someone thinks they might have made for him mm-hmm. I always am in the housing business. I'm not in the judging business. Mm -hmm. If I were in the judging business, I know a few United States senators that wouldn't have a house.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But because I'm in the housing business, all I can do is accept people at their face value and try and help them into a home. So there are, I could, I could bore you to literal tears all day long, telling you stories of amazing people. I've met people like Jeff, who, who, for all intents and purposes has won his struggle and many other people who did not fare as well. I'll tell you one other quick story. Yes, please. About a, about a veteran just because of Veterans Day and you mentioned that you are one. To me, the veterans are the most, they're the most capable people on the street. Mm -hmm. They are the people who are actually trained to live on the street. They're trained to live in the woods. They're trained to, to, to be, strength under pressure bullets whizzing by they're still making the decisions they're training like everything else has stopped working but their training still works Mm -hmm. and so they are the strength of the homeless community they are the leadership of the homeless community and because of our nation's priorities we pull them out of the homeless community the fastest so there's more money for homeless outreach for veterans there's more money for housing for veterans there's more there are more resource sources for veterans so this actual leadership core of a community is pulled out really as fast as humanly possible and then the less qualified people to be homeless for want of a better term yeah. they live without them but there was this one gentleman and he was in the shelter and the rule was you couldn't leave the building if you were doing your laundry and if your laundry was left in the washer or the dryer, it would be thrown away. Okay. Now, by the time you're in a shelter, these folks just had a, a like a, a junior high school half locker to keep their stuff, and you don't have much for clothing. Mm-hmm. And so he had to go. He had a job interview, and he asked a woman in the shelter to take his clothes out of the laundry for him, mm. and she forgot. And when he got back to the shelter, his clothes were thrown away. Oh. And that wasn't my department. My department was counseling, helping people get housing. Yes. The woman who's program, she was program manager. She ran the building. It was her job to make sure that the facility ran. So she threw his clothes away. Mm. And I was always locking heads with these people because... She had a job to do, but her job was stupid, in Mm -hmm. my opinion. If she couldn't put some laundry in her her office and wait for somebody to come back, she was an unimaginative person in my mind. So anyway, this guy came back, and he lost his mind. He was so furious, a level of anger that people would be stunned by, Mm -hmm. absolutely stunned by but he had counted on one person to help him and she she was human and forgot yes then the the organization that was supposed to help him threw his clothes away yeah. and so i went out with him and we dumpster dove and climbed through the dumpster to find his clothing and put it back through the washer again you know and and that was the only thing that calmed him down was saying okay let's Go get your clothes back. Yeah. Luckily, she didn't set them on fire. <laughs> we can probably find them. So yeah. These are the things that people encounter. That and, and that level of rage that he was, he didn't hurt anybody, but he was so angry. And that level of rage will generally get you kicked out of a shelter. If you're angry, which how can you help it? Yes. You'll get thrown out.
1: All right. We're going to take a break there. This is enlightening. As disturbing as it is, and it is. But we are having our image, our definition, our concept of homelessness reassessed and reestablished as more truthful. And this honesty, this level of honesty is necessary for all of us. Stay with us, everyone. We'll be back with our guest today, Pat Lamash, author, and certainly extraordinaire in the, shall we call it, the science of knowing and doing. What can one person do? to help alleviate homelessness. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to the NDFail Minute. In 2006, an inconvenient truth told us that global warming was upon us, that it was caused by the actions of mankind and that the consequences would be dire if we took no action. Ten years later, broad predictions have coalesced into horrific specifics and climate change accelerates. Really? Who says so? Important, trustworthy people say so. Check out the eye-opening documentary, The Age of Consequences. These aren't our simultaneously lauded and vilified scientists talking, but important and thoughtful world leaders. Those who bear frontline burden. They must plan for our survival. One of the first countries to go underwater will be Bangladesh. This will be a flashpoint. Did you know there is already a fence surrounding the entire country for controlling the inevitable mass migration? Many of the biggest crises of our times, Syria, the Sudan, the failed Arab Spring, and others, are already tied to climate change. With shocking imagery driving their points home, the predictions of these world leaders are grounded in grim reality. We at the Indie Film Minute are not political animals. We only watch movies and bring your attention to the good ones. This one is a powerful eye-opener. Watch it. You'll see the age of consequences, not in theaters, discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Usually at this point in our programs, I read something I have written. But in this new year, 2020, year of impeachment and potential war, potential forever wars never fought by the men who send our youth. This poem was written by a Marine and sent to a friend of mine who forwarded it on to me. As a veteran, as a patriot, as an American, as a human being, I now share it with you. It was the night before Christmas. He lived all alone in a one-bedroom house made of plaster and stone. I had come down the chimney with presents to give, and to see just who in this home did live. I looked all about, a strange sight I did see. No tinsel, no presents, not even a tree. No stocking by mantle, just boots filled with sand. On the wall hung pictures of far distant lands. With medals and badges, awards of all kinds, a sober thought came through my mind. For this house was different, it was dark and dreary. I found the home of a soldier, once I could see clearly. The soldier lay sleeping, silent, alone, curled up on the floor in this one-bedroom home. The face was gentle, the room in such disorder, not how I pictured a United States soldier. Was this the hero of whom I just read, curled up on a poncho, the floor for a bed?" I realized the families that I saw this night owed their lives to these soldiers who were willing to fight. Soon round the world the children would play and grown-ups would celebrate a bright Christmas day. They all enjoyed freedom each month of the year because of the soldiers like the one lying here. I couldn't help wonder how many lay alone on a Christmas Eve in a land far from home. The very thought brought a tear to my eye. I dropped my knees and started to cry. The soldier awakened and I heard a rough voice. Santa, don't cry. This life is my choice. I fight for freedom. I don't ask for more. My life is my God, my country, my core. The soldier rolled over and drifted to sleep. I couldn't control it. I continued to I kept watch for hours, so silent and still, and we both shivered from the cold night's chill. I didn't want to leave on that cold, dark night, this guardian of honor so willing to fight. Then the soldier rolled over with a voice soft and pure, whispered, Carry on, Santa. It's Christmas Day. All is secure. One look at my watch, and I knew he was right. Merry Christmas, my friend. And to all, a good night. This poem was written by a marine. The following is his request. I think it is reasonable. Please do your part to plant this seed of kindness instead of rancor, of unity instead of chaos, and of world peace instead of war. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.